I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Suddenly, like from out of nowhere, in 2013 to 2014, students are acting as though words are dangerous, books are violent, speakers will be traumatizing. And so we start hearing the first talk about students requesting safe spaces, trigger warnings, talking about microaggressions. It's as though the students were very, very thin-skinned, easily harmed, and frightened. I want to stress, we don't know the cause, but the two best hypotheses are uh, social media, and before they got social media, the vast overprotection that we subjected kids to, we basically took away childhood from them in the 1990s. It seems to me we're going through a time now when we agree less and less with one another, even about things we agree on. More and more, if we don't use the approved language, we're called out. Nuance is suspected of agreeing with the other side, and the other side tends to be where the devil lives. I thought it would be fun to talk with someone who seriously studied issues like this. Jonathan Haidt has become one of the leading researchers in the psychology of morality, and he's the author of books titled The Happiness Hypothesis and The Righteous Mind. More recently, he's been looking into the widening gulf that separates the political left and the political right in our country, a chasm, he argues, that may have its roots in what he calls, in his latest book, The Coddling of the American Mind. John, I'm really glad that you were able to come in and talk with me today because what you deal with, what you've studied and written about and talked about, is something that seems endemic to the way we live today, which is how we're partly, how we're divided up into two camps and each camp can't stand the other. And if we have conversations about relating and communicating, that seems to be central to the question. It seems to get more extreme in your new book, The Coddling of the American Mind. But you've written earlier about this whole question of how each side doesn't trust the other. Where does that come from? Mm -hmm. Um, So in terms of picking my retirement stocks, if I had just always done the opposite of, of everything I did, I would be a richer man today. But in terms of picking subjects to study, uh, soon after graduate school, I picked moral psychology, and then I switched over to political psychology, and then specifically um, how processes of polarization make us all incredibly stupid as we think about how we can beat the other side. And this is the topic I picked in the early 2000s, and my God, am I a wealthy man today in terms of uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of, of picking an academic topic to study. <laughs> um, that, is that actual wealth, or is that wealth of knowledge? No, well, it's wealth of knowledge, although I guess it does translate into invitations to speak. So I suppose there is a there is some sort of conversion factor there. You sure? I, there was one uh, TED Talk you gave that got three million views so far. Which it was is, on how left and right have trouble understanding each other. And I gave that in 2008. That's and right. not only does that show, I think, not only that we're divided, but that we're hungry to be undivided. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of survey work showing that the great majority of Americans want uh, politicians to be more civil, and they want them to compromise. But that mostly means they want the politicians on the other side to be more flexible and to compromise. I was wondering about that. I, I take it that research has shown that the liberal mind is more open to change, and the conservative mind is less so or opposed a little bit to mm-hmm. some extent to change. Yes. So when you have two groups who ought to reach out to one another, 
does that mean that the liberals are going to be more likely to reach out and accept the uh, the conservatives and vice versa? Yeah. So if everything else were equal, then there is some truth to what you say, because uh, one of the big findings in personality research on politics, like what what's different about the personalities of people on the left and the right, is that people who are born and raised uh, when they're kids, they they just like trying different things. They like exploring different things. They're more open to new uh, new foods and experiences. Um, it's a fairly stable personality trait, and such people tend to be more attracted to progressive or left-wing causes. Um, people who like order, predictability, um, stability, uh, routine, they do tend to be attracted more to conservative uh, parties, and that's true around the world. So it, there is some truth to what you say. But with that said, before we lose all the conservative listeners, a factor that swamps that is the degree to which each side feels that it is defending sacred values and it is uh, in a tribal warfare mindset. And so right now, both sides are are extremely tribal. Both sides are extremely closed-minded. Both sides will attack anyone on their side who shows any nuance. For example, if you're on the left, um, think about the last time a friend of yours said something like, well, you know, I really hate Donald Trump, but I got to admit he was right on points A, B, and C. Like, no, you can't do that in most circles. It has yeah, to be straight true. down and the I, line. And, and, and I was raising the question because it doesn't appear to me in fact, that the left is more willing to see any good in the right than the right is in seeing any good in the left. It, uh, on the contrary, the, the tribalism seems to be so acute, mm -hmm. severe. You know, when uh, Kelly and Conway talked about alternative facts, I remember being shouted down in conversations because I said, you know, there is a way of seeing that as n not, not stupidity. There are facts that some people pay more attention to, give greater weight to than other people do. A scientific controversy could it could be an example of that. But before they know more about a question, you might give evidence of on one side more weight than on the other side. Well, uh, how does that sound to you? Well, it sounds to me like you just violated the, the, the cardinal rule of partisan life, which is you actually tried to find whether there was some truth in what she said rather right. than putting your stake in the ground saying she's wrong, everything she says is wrong, and now I will use my prodigious intelligence to find five reasons why she's wrong. Right. So yeah, that's I, a great I example. Out, I came out, in, <laughs> I did raise the question, which I thought was worth raising, is, is there a way of looking at it that's, uh, that holds water. But then when I heard a fact is not a fact, I started to, mm -hmm. <laughs> to, to go the other yeah. way. No, that's right. There's a, there's a funny thing going on in our country. It's not funny. It's tragic. But beginning, I think, so um, studies that show the degree to which we hate the other side, the surprising finding is that back in the 70s and even into the 80s, people gave very high ratings to their own party, but their ratings of the other party were only a little below the midpoint. They mildly disliked the other mm. party overall on average. Um, and then the, those lines, the sort of the, the cross-partisan dislike lines, they begin sloping up in the 80s and the 90s, and then they accelerate their slope after 2000. So the, the, the 2000s uh, have been really bad for polarization. And to get back to your point about, you know, what happens when you show nuance or whether the left or right is more open now, beginning with the George W. Bush presidency, we began to use the phrase Bush derangement syndrome. Mm. So as long as Bush was in the White House, there were people on the left who would believe conspiracy theories because they were really, really angry. And if you're angry, you'll believe anything um, that makes your opponents look bad, uh, parentheses, 
a psychological fact that the Russians are very, very aware of, close parentheses. Um, so the left kind of had Bush derangement syndrome back you know, from 2001 to 2009, and then Obama comes in, and then now it's the right's turn to have Obama derangement syndrome, which means some of them will believe any crackpot theory that makes Obama look bad. And then Trump comes in, and now the left has Trump derangement syndrome. I don't mean to say that Trump and Obama are, are equal or equivalent. I just mean to say that whichever side uh, controls the White House, the other side should probably get free automatic government-paid Xanax. If everybody on the other side were given Xanax, <laughs> they would be a little calmer. And I'm not saying they shouldn't fight. I'm just saying they would be less self-destructive because they wouldn't be so crazy. This is a new angle on healthcare. I yeah, guess. for as long as we're talking about healthcare reform. Let's, uh, yeah. Well, I do remember, just in my personal experience, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I, I think I would I have identified myself pretty much left of center, and people right of center would uh, tease me, try to get a rise out of me by saying things they knew countered what I would probably have believed as someone left of center. But it was teasing. Yeah. And, it was, and then the teasing, teasing grew normal. into sneering. Yep. And then it became uh, – I, I it was hard to find myself in a conversation with somebody right, right of center because they would move in completely different worlds. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's right. I think you're, you're right in observing that process that is part of what's happened to us. Um, so a theme in, in all of my books, I always try to take an evolutionary view and look at um, what is human nature. And then I always combine it with a cultural psychology view uh, about what are the networks of meaning that we participate in, what are the social structures, and how are they changing and evolving. Um, so I think there's little doubt that human beings evolved for both competition and cooperation. We're really good at both. Um, it's fashionable these days to talk about tribalism. I do it a lot. Uh, we have to remember, though, that tribes, real tribes are actually very good, not just at fighting each other, but also at trading and cooperating, uh, learning from each other. And isn't it true that there's no uh, collaboration like that within a tribe, especially when that tribe is at war with another tribe. Exactly. The, so the, the, the cooperation yep. just shoots up. Yep, I can say it more succinctly by quoting the Bedouin proverb. This is one of the most perfect distillations of social psychology ever, which is me against my brother, me and my brother against our cousin, me, my brother, and cousin against the stranger. So human tribalism has this kind of recursive or nested or Russian doll quality to mm. it. It's so interesting to me that we now have the means to have virtual tribes. We, uh, I mean, in a way we, ha we had that before. With, in the 60s, you could be identified by your haircut as mm -hmm. which tribe yeah, you belong to. the mods to. and the rockers and the, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, but now... Across the world, you can be identified by a catchphrase that you share with somebody on social media, yeah. and you know what tribe you're dealing with mm -hmm. pretty pretty quickly. This is the main reason that I am pessimistic about the future. I've mm. been studying uh, polarization and the danger of political polarization for about 15 years now. And social media is extremely alarming um, because the sort of the normal speed at which things rise, at which outrage is triggered, um, the, the intensity of it, the ease of forming mobs, you know, it, it's, as though, it's as though somebody reached into the social network, the social fabric that had been slowly evolving um, over, century, you know, over centuries in terms of uh, cultural evolution. Somebody reached in one day in 2006 and just said, 
let's, let's just take all these connectors, these wires, and let's make them 10 times faster. Or let, let's connect people 10 times more. And let's see what happens. Of course, that was the year that Facebook opened up to the world. And in the early days, um, they, many of us were utopian, like, wow, let's connect everybody. Won't that be great? I mean, this is the direction of history is more connection and the printing press and the telephone and telegram. You know. I mean, so, you know, it sounds good, especially if you are on the left. Now, the left tends to have a more utopian view, a positive view of human nature, um, very much the John Lennon view. Imagine if there were no countries, no religion, just all the people connected in one giant social network. Wouldn't it be great? Uh, conservatives tend to have a much darker view of human nature, and they think that people are naturally more selfish, greedy, and violent, and that they need social structures and traditions and laws to restrain them. Um, I, you know, in the early days of the web, of, of social media, the, the, the left seemed to be more right. Uh, now I think we're seeing more of the dark side. I love the idea that you talk about in one, one something I read of yours or heard you say that uh, you were quoting somebody who said that it that you're born with a first draft, a first draft. That's of right. morality, yeah. and then I assume it's altered by your experience after that. That's right, especially in childhood. Uh, and so this is actually very important for, well, if we're, if we're going to talk about uh, uh, my new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, this is right. very important to understand um, that it, the brain is plastic. It's very plastic when you're very young. The, the, the human brain is not that capable when you're young, but it's full of potential. It's very plastic. And then as you go through life and you have experience, you know, if you're raised in a warrior culture, you'll develop certain virtues. If you're raised in a trading culture or a fishing culture, you'll develop other virtues. Um, so there's a period of plasticity. And the frontal cortex in particular um, really begins kind of locking down or, or laying down uh, um, around, especially around puberty through your early 20s or, or to some extent late 20s. Um, so what we do to kids, the way we raise kids, the sort of the macro environment that we raise them in can have some major effects that can show up as generational differences. What's the connection between the personality traits you have and how they're affected mm -hmm. by the environment you're in and what I think you feel is too much early attention on keeping kids safe. Exactly. That's right. So here's the mystery that launched, uh, that launched the book. This is a, uh, a book that I wrote with Greg Lukianoff, uh, a friend of mine who is the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Um, so Greg is prone to depression. He had a terrible depression in 2007. He made very specific plans on how he was going to kill himself. And uh, at one point in time, he lost his nerve uh, and, and called 911 and, and broke down crying, and they convinced him to check himself into a hospital. Um, when he got out of the hospital, he learned cognitive behavioral therapy, where you learn to challenge uh, the, the distorted thoughts, the catastrophizing, the emotional reasoning. Um, he learned to challenge those thoughts, uh, and it, it helped cure his depression. He's been much better ever since. So he goes back to his job um, defending student free speech rights against administrators who are always trying to limit them to limit their liability. And then suddenly, like from out of nowhere, in 2013 to 2014, in that academic year, Greg finds that students, some students, are acting as though words are dangerous, 
books are violent, speakers will be traumatizing. And so we start hearing the first talk about students requesting safe spaces, trigger warnings, talking about microaggressions. It's as though the students, suddenly some students were very, very thin-skinned, easily harmed, and frightened. And Greg was very puzzled by this because they justified their requests or demands sometimes. They justified them by using the exact same cognitive distortions that he had learned to stop doing. You know, if this speaker... Like what? Like catastrophizing. If this speaker is allowed on campus, the people will be traumatized. There, it will mm. be violent. So, you know, mm. overgeneralizing, catastrophizing. Um, so Greg comes to talk to me about this, and he says, John, if, if students are beginning to think this way, if somehow they're learning to think this way at college, isn't this going to make them depressed? And I thought this was a great idea because I'd just begun to hear about this stuff too. And so we, we uh, spent about uh, a year uh, writing an article which was eventually published in The Atlantic. And my job at the time was to find the statistics to show that college students were now becoming more depressed. And I couldn't do it. The stats weren't there. Everyone was talking about it. I kept hearing counselors and you know, college uh, psychologists say that they're overwhelmed, but I couldn't find hard data to show that there was a national wave of depression and anxiety, especially among college students. Well, there was, but it takes about two years between the time when something happens and the time when a paper's published on it. Mm. So things, uh, things really exploded in the fall of 2015, a lot of student protests, uh, a lot more of an idea that uh, the students are in danger on campus, they need protection from words, books, speakers, and ideas. Um, so we, we, we expanded the article a lot and did a lot more research. And so the result is our book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And I know I've been talking too long here, so I'll just get to the chapter. The key thing for our discussion at this moment is chapter seven, where we go through the mental health stats. Um, imagine lines uh, showing the levels of depression and anxiety for teenage girls and boys. Um, girls have higher levels of depression and anxiety. That's, that's always been the case. But they're fairly stable until about 2011. And then all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, the boys' rate starts going up a little, and the girls' rate starts going up a lot. This came out of nowhere. It's gigantic. It's happening in the same way in the UK, Canada, Ireland. Those are the countries I've looked at. I now have some people looking into continental Europe and East Asia because the two leading factors, again, I want to stress, we don't know the cause, but the two best hypotheses are uh, social media, which I'll come back to, um, and before they got social media, um, the vast overprotection that we subjected kids to, we basically took away childhood from them in the 1990s. Um, and what I mean by that is, so when I speak about the book, I always do this simple demonstration. I just ask the audience, uh, everyone born before 1982, so before the millennials, um, what year, how old were you when you were let out? How old were Lit you? Let out to play by yourself yeah. out of the house. You, that's right. You, the leash was taken off you. Your parents weren't watching you. You could actually walk outside. You could walk six blocks to a friend house. And then you and your friend could walk to a park and play in a park. Mm -hmm. And the answer is always six. Six, 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 six. I mean, sometimes five, sometimes seven. All right, but it, it's, it's a re there's a really strong mode of six because first grade, that was the norm. Kindergartners, you don't really trust them to walk to yeah, school. Yeah, that was true first, for me too, yeah, about it, six. That's right. It, first grade, that was the norm. At first grade, kids can do it. Um, so that was always the case. And then I say, okay, just those born after 1994. So kids born in 1995 and after are not millennials. This is very important. They are not millennials. College students today are not millennials. They are Gen Z, 
or Gen Z, or iGen for the internet generation. And then I asked them, and the answer for them is always between 10 and 14. Hardly anyone was let out before. Between 10 and, 10 and 14, 14 to hardly. let out of the house by yeah. yourself? Yep. That's amazing. Well, because think about it. Um, nowadays, if you, if you let your kid out of the house at age 10, and that kid is caught playing in a park with a friend, you can be arrested in some places. What? Wait, this sounds a little extreme. It doesn't happen often, but it happens often enough that we all know we can't let our, you can't, you know, you can't let a nine-year-old I saw out. in your book a piece of paper that a kid could take with him saying, yeah. if you find me and I'm by myself, I, I have permission from my parents and that's I'm right. not in danger. Yeah, no, that's right. I wrote that, right. I wrote that myself. So I was, I was very influenced by Lenore Scanese, this wonderful woman who wrote a book called Free Range Kids. Um, she let her nine-year-old ride the New York City subway. I mean, my parents rode the New York City subway when they were eight and nine years old, but you know, we stopped that um, in the 80s and 90s, I guess. So... Um, we, there's been an increasing norm in the 90s especially. Uh, we freaked out about child abduction, just totally freaked so out So what about was it. this prompted by? Were, were there suddenly more uh, no. newspaper reports yeah, of yes. people being abducted? Yeah. So the rate has been fairly constant except that it's actually gone down somewhat. Like all crime has gone down. Crime was plummeting in the 1990s. So just as the crime rate was plummeting, we freaked out. And there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, there were a couple of very high-profile killings. There was Aton Pates in 1979 in New York City. But the more important one uh, was Adam Walsh, um, which I think was 1980 in Florida. And so these are horrific, horrific crimes. Um, but after that, Adam Walsh's father um, um, devoted himself to help, uh, protecting other other families, other kids from this happening too. So I, I, I certainly respect him for his motives. Uh, but the net effect was that the net effect was that the fear. The fear that we now all have and that we've imparted to our children, I believe, has done far more harm than the, than the, than the crime themselves. That is, the, the increase, you know, I didn't even mention the increase in suicide. The increase in teenage suicide is so big now. This dwarfs any victimization by, by crime in this country. When we come back, I ask Jonathan what he calls the billion-dollar question. What can we do about the political polarization that's paralyzing the nation after this short break? On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Awards Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the end blindness movement including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.EndBlindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Jonathan Haidt. The connection between this overattention to safety and this divide 
between left and right. Um, I'm not sure I understand that yet. No, you're right. You shouldn't because I haven't explained it yet. And so, okay, so let's let's uh, w- first let's back up a bit and let's really trace out the how the overprotection leads to anxiety. Mammals play. All mammals play, and that's because we have these big brains that are not really pre-programmed. They're not pre-programmed entirely. Evolution. Expect, in a sense, expected mammals to play. And, and as they play, they're practicing the skills for adulthood and that they're getting the experiences that allow the frontal cortex and the rest of the brain to wire up properly. Part of the wiring up is risk-taking. So animals explore the boundaries of their ability, which are very limited when they're infants, um, but then they test them, they extend them, extend them, and extend them. So when kids learn to, say, skateboard, if you look at kids who learn to skateboard, they don't just skateboard down a hill and go back and do it again and again and again. Once they've mastered it, they try skateboarding down the stairs or down a railing. So the kids, this is the developmental program. Kids have to be given many thousands and thousands of opportunities to take risks, face them, master them, fail at some of them, try again. And if you interrupt that, if you don't let kids experience risk after risk after risk, then they're not going to push out the boundaries of their ability, and they're going to find the world much more threatening and dangerous. That's what we did to our kids in the 90s when we locked them up, when we said the normal, the principal period of childhood from age 8 to 12, the period when almost all children's stories take place, when kids go off on an adventure with their mom and dad. No, not with their mom and dad. They leave their mom and dad behind. They go off and have an adventure. Okay, That's when adventures happen between 8 and 12. Okay, And we said, no, you don't get any adventures until it's too late. Once you hit puberty, then we'll let you out, but we have to track you, track your cell phone. Because then you're more dangerous when you hit puberty. Your well, adventures yeah. can get to be serious. Well, actually, that's right. So that we're, like, we do, we're doing everything wrong about this, but with good intentions. That's the subtitle of the book is how good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. So how does that connect to the divide, okay. the tribalism yeah. and that kind of thing? Okay. So what I found as so, – so the national data is, is very clear um, that the, the rise in anxiety and depression is everywhere. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's boys and girls, but it's more girls. Um, it's black and white. It's upper and lower social class. So it, it's, it's national. And when I speak about the book, uh, I find wherever I go, this, the professors, the, the track coach, everybody is noticing that the kids are just much more fragile, easily discouraged, easily reduced to tears. That's everywhere. Um, so the more depressed and anxious people we have on campus, there's research, we didn't put much of it in the book, but there's research that if you have a depressed or anxious person in the classroom, they're going to jump to the most negative reading of everything they can, and they're more inflexible. It's harder to get them off that reading with evidence. So this is part of what has disrupted our ability to have open conversations on campus is that there are a lot of people among us who are very negative and inflexible. So what what can people do? They Here they are, anxious, mm-hmm. convinced that the other side is evil, mm-hmm. bad for the country, bad. There's no... Your own side won't allow any nuance in how you feel about the other side. How do we reconstitute ourselves as... As our as a tribe that extends across the nation and doesn't just cover yeah. those of us who are in our half. <clears throat> no, that's right. That's that's the the billion dollar question. That's the question upon which I think the survival of this country depends. Um, and there's no short term fix. I think things are going to get things will get worse before they get better. Uh, but if we think long term and we think that America has been through some incredibly divisive periods before, obviously the ones people talk about are the Civil War and the 1968 and that era, where uh, the the forces pulling us apart were. Stronger stronger then. Um, 
However, the forces holding us together are actually fairly weak now. Uh, but I would break it up into, into three parts. So one is um, we have to raise stronger kids. We have to let kids out again and let them have the experiences that their brains are expecting to have so that they, they can become autonomous adults able to face books and speakers and ideas and people on the other side and not feel that they are in physical danger. So there's a wonderful organization called letgrow.org. I urge anybody with kids under 16, please go to letgrow.org, sign up, Lenore Skenazy runs it, uh, and you'll learn how your family and your school can give childhood back to kids. We think this will lower the rate of depression and anxiety. They'll be much more prepared for college. They will be much more prepared for life. That's the first piece. Second piece is we've got to get social media out of middle school. This, I think, you know, again, we don't know for sure, but the 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 the, the um, skyrocketing rates of self harm and suicide among teenagers, teenage girls especially, are so high that this I think counts as a national emergency. Um, the millennials got social media when they were in college, and it does doesn't seem to have harmed them. Their brains were more developed um, in college. There's not much bullying. Um, but in middle school, uh, it's hard enough to be a teenage girl um, already. It's harder to be a teenage girl than a teenage boy. Their social lives are more complex. They have a lot more relational aggression. Boys' aggression is physical. So when, when iPhones and social media became common around 2011, 2012, it didn't really change boys' aggression. Um, they just played video games with their new phones. But it really ramped up girls' bullying, girls' relational competition and aggression, um, their stress levels. So many teenagers sleep with their phones near their bed. And so if people are talking about them, they're checking overnight. Mm. And so so if anyone's listening to me, please, you got to tell your kids, no screens in the bedroom um, uh, after, you know, you have to take, the, take all the devices out by half an hour before bedtime. And you've got to talk to the principal of your elementary and middle school and ask them, please set a norm for us, please. Because if I tell my son, I have a 12-year-old son, if I say you can't be on Instagram, he says, but most of my friends are. And I say, well, I'm sorry. You know, I, this, is, this is just so bad for you. I can't let you do this. And it's hard. So you have, is there hard data that, that supports this idea that there's a, a real connection between cell phones and anxiety? Yes, but it's complicated. So to put it in its briefest form, there's a large amount of correlational evidence. Um, so if you look at just how much time kids spend on screens uh, and are on social media, up to two hours a day of screen time does not appear to be harmful. I don't, so I'm not saying, oh, you know, they can't have, they can't have screens. Um, up to two hours a day is not harmful. Uh, correlationally, uh, kids who spend more than f uh, four hours, four, five, six, seven, eight hours, uh, the more you spend, the more depressed and anxious you are, the more likely you are to commit suicide. All sorts of bad things go with heavy usage. And so, so we, we don't know if you do that because you're depressed on account of something else, and that makes that drives you to your screen mm -hmm. to fill the time or reduce your anxiety. Exactly. So that's that's a plausible hypothesis. Um, however, there are ways you can look at correlational data, look at time lag, look at when you increase the use and when the symptoms increase. So even the correlational data at least hints at causality. Mm -hmm. More convincing to me is now there's a bunch of studies where you experimentally randomly assign people who are social media users. You randomly say, okay, if, you know, you you 50, stop with the social media for a month, and you 50, just go on as you were. A uh, study was just done at the University of Pennsylvania. The results were very clear. Uh, for people who are low on depression and anxiety, it made no difference. But for those who are high on depression and anxiety, the half that were told to stop using social media, almost immediately, within one week, their symptoms improved. 
that does sound like there's probably a connection. That's right. That's right. So I think the evidence is strong enough. I mean, we're not freaking out prematurely. There's, there are many studies. Um, we, we have a site for the book, thecoddling.com. Um, we'll be putting up uh, all the studies we can find, and we cite a lot of them in the book. But I think the case is strong enough, not for a law. I'm not saying we need a national law, but we need norms. And it's very hard for an individual parent to set norms. So if you have anything to do with an elementary school or a middle school and you're listening to this, please ask the principal to set a norm and recommend that parents do not let their children even have a social media account until they get to high school. Now, you, you mentioned three things we can do to make things better along these lines. What are they again? So uh, uh, the, the first thing is we have to give childhood back to kids, give them a lot of unsupervised free playtime so that they will become more risk tolerant uh, and, and more strong and independent. The second is we have to get a handle on social media and device time, uh, limit social media exposure, keep it out of middle schools entirely. This, uh, these two steps will reduce the amount of teenagers, the, the, the rate of teenage depression and anxiety. And then the third thing is that leadership in all organizations has to define things so that differences of viewpoint are seen as potentially good things, as ways that we learn from each other. Um, so on college campuses, a lot much stronger, clearer leadership is necessary to make clear what is our mission here? What are we doing here? Why do we actually need difference? Why do we actually need dissent? So uh, leaders of, of universities can, cre can create climates in which dissent and disagreement and the discomfort of hearing ideas that you hate um, will, uh, will be seen as part of the mission, as part of what we all need to do to get stronger and smarter. Uh, you know, if you go through your four years in college without being challenged, you're not going to be very good at arguing or standing up for your side when you get out. More importantly, though, what's happening um, just in the last year as members of Gen Z have begun graduating from college and joining the corporate world, um, I hear increasing numbers of stories that they're taking these norms from the university into the corporate world. Um, and I think it's going to lead to a lot more conflict within companies, within mm. all sorts of organizations. So I think it's important, again, for leadership to set norms about what are we trying to do and how we have to give each other the benefit of the doubt. Diversity cannot work if we don't give each other the benefit of the doubt. Diversity can be divisive or it can yield enormous benefits of creativity and learning. And if we, if we handle it in the wrong way, it can actually make groups worse. If we handle it in the right way, it can make them a lot better. Um, so me and some some colleagues at NYU, we've created um, a, a program which we call Open Mind. If you go to openmindplatform.org, you can just use it for free. It's right there on the web. Uh, it's five steps. Each takes about 10 or 15 minutes. And we walk you through some of the insights from moral psychology, from Dale Carnegie. Mm -hmm. uh, why is it good for you to, to talk to people on this side? I love that. I love that you refer to Dale Carnegie. Oh, he's a what, great social psychologist. What, what, do you have a, 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 a sentence or a, a principle that you get from Dale Carnegie that's helpful in this? Oh, my God. Here, I've, okay. I, I happen to have brought his book, book into book the studio. Yeah, right here in the, the yellowed book with yeah. stiff pages. You know, and people should read the original edition from the 30s. It's you know he's like you know he's talking about uh, all these things from the like the 1910s. It's amazing. We make um, jokes about the title, but he had he had oh, really usable ideas. Yeah. So what's one of these okay. ideas? So you just read the table of contents. So here, if you want to gather honey, don't kick over the beehive. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, let's see. Oh, actually, some of them are a little cryptic. You know, if you don't do this, you're headed for trouble. Um, 
but a formula. So actually, so he's actually doing a sales pitch here. So he keeps them a little bit secret. But the gist of it is, don't start off with saying no, you're wrong, and here's why, because mm-hmm. that instantly puts the person into defensive mode, and they're looking for reasons that they're right. But if you start off, basically, it's all contained also in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, uh, why do you complain about the speck in your neighbor's eye when you do not see the log in your own eye? And so, if you start off by saying, "Okay, let's just let's just model a conversation," you know, if I'm on the left and and you're on the right, you're my uncle, you know, the the famous Uncle Bob, right. who's uh, you know Trump voter at Thanksgiving, right? Um, well, let's not do Trump voter. That might be too hard. But just sort of in general, okay, well, left, let's right. do it. The, yeah. the trouble with you people. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The trouble Have with you, you people compassion. is you want to give everything. You want to let all these foreigners in and take away our jobs, and you don't care about the real people who are living here now, hurting and starving and out of work. Yeah, well, you know, Uncle Bob, I got to say, when people on the left don't even distinguish between legal and illegal immigration when they act like it doesn't matter how you came here, you know, I think that's wrong. So I I think your side is actually right to say we got to get control of the border um, and not just have people coming over willy-nilly, you know, but, but then at the same time that we have to have order and a process and it should be a fair process— and I, I, then I think that at least the people who are here and who came in, we should treat them as humanely as possible. W- w- what do you think, Uncle Bob? I think I'm still right. <laughs> well, okay. But, yeah. but no, but, but you've shown that there's something that we have in common. Right. And, and I, I have found that that works. And we teach that when we teach uh, communication. Wait, how do you put it? What's the principle? To well, we 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 have an exercise where one person rants at the other, mm-hmm. and the person who's listening to the rant then has the task of introducing that person to the rest of the group only in terms of the most positive. Oh things my god, that's great! It's a really good exercise. Per- oh my god, Dale Carnegie and I both approve. That's I, I love it. I'm going to try that. It, it has a wonderful positive effect on both the listener and the ranter because it's interesting to hear your rant translated into only positive terms. And that's the key to that's one of the keys to moral psychology. The subtitle of my last book, well, the, the book is called The Righteous Mind, but the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Uh, because, you know, even, I mean, the research shows, you know, even, you know, even murder, even genocide often is driven by moral motives. I don't mean that they were good. What I mean is people think that they're pursuing some virtue. They're saving the country. They're standing up for something. So, you know, we as a species, we evolved all these moral emotions. It doesn't mean that we're always nice. Uh, we're often willing to use violence to pursue them, but we're, we think we're serving some good. And if you can at least acknowledge that you know, I hear that you have these concerns, and I think you're not crazy to have them. In fact, I think you're right about a couple of them. That, it, it, it practically pushes a button in your forehead, the reciprocity button. It's going to trigger you to maybe make a reciprocal acknowledgement about me. doesn't always work, but sometimes it does. That seems to be something we're, we're born with, thanks to our cousins in the animal world. I, you know, I was, I was uh, on, the, on the science show I did. I interviewed Franz Duval. And got to know some chimps mm-hmm. fairly well. One young chimp gave me a sock in the jaw and knocked oh my, me over. Oh, my God. Totally not. But he was, he was being playful probably. Oh. After he knocked me over, the people standing around said, oh, look, he's apologizing. Hmm. He held out his hand with the uh, knuckles uh, okay. f- showing forward, right. which was a sign among the chimps of, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, don't, whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it means to them, don't hit yeah. me back, I don't know what yeah. it meant. But that, that little gesture of what they were describing as apology mm-hmm. sounded to me like an inborn trait. That's right. 
that we probably share with them, this desire to smooth over the rough parts between Mm -hmm. us. That's right. Uh, If you treat people as people, if you assume good intentions, and if you take a gentle approach, then you can actually change people. And you can learn all of this by reading How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, (laughs) And reading your books. Yeah, yeah, you can can learn some of it in, in The Happiness Hypothesis, some of it in The Righteous Mind. This has been so much fun. I'd love to talk to you more. I'm I'm getting signals from the control room. We have to wrap it up. What we usually end our conversations with, if you're willing to do it, is seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. All right. They're they're roughly about communicating and relating. Let's give it a try. Okay. Number one, what do you wish you really understood? What I wish I really understood is what, what... social connectivity, what increasing social connectivity is really doing to us. I think it has profound effects, but I don't know what they are yet. Okay. Number two, what do you wish other people understood about you? Oh, what, oh my God. What I wish they understood about me is that I'm not on the right. I mean, people assume because, you know, I, I'm working on college campuses and I'm critical of aspects of things that happen on college campuses. So I'm sometimes critical of the left and people assume, oh, well, he must be on the right. And there's this new term, uh, right adjacent. Well, yeah, as a centrist, I guess I am right adjacent. God, they got so many new phrases now. It's hard to keep up. Oh, it changes every day. Number three, what, what's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Oh, my, what's the strangest question anyone's ever asked me? Um, I don't know. I actually, I can't, I mean, I, maybe don't, it's this I one. can't label it. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally stumped and I'm not often stumped, so maybe it is this one. Okay. How do you stop a compulsive talker? How do you stop a compulsive How talker? do you do How it? do I do it? Well, I'm a lot ruder than my wife is. My, my wife uh, sometimes thinks that I'm a little pushy in conversations. Um, I just kind of look for a little pause, and I just start, I start talking a little bit because if you just – sometimes people just don't know that they're going on for a mm-hmm. long time. So if you just give a signal, then sometimes there will be enough of a pause. Yeah, I sometimes give a signal, and I see – the signal coming back. I'm not finished with this sentence yet. Oh, <laughs> and yeah, I have least, another paragraph. I usually follow it with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But actually, no. Actually, yeah. I think one of the best ways is to sort of agree with him. Like, oh yes, I I agree with you about that. And in I, fact, let me. Uh, you can yeah, kind of hijack you, it in that yes way. Yes, and yeah. Um, yes, and there you go. Yeah. Okay. Is there anyone? Oh, is there anyone for whom you just can't feel empathy? Anyone whom I just can't feel empathy. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't feel any empathy for, for President Trump. I have a lot of negative feelings for him, and I've not tried to feel empathy. And now the thought that I should do so is causing all kinds of like second-order negative feelings in me. <laughs> so, yeah, I have not made any effort. I do try to make a big distinction between the president and the people who voted for them for him. I don't, I don't judge them harshly. I, I do have a lot of—I I often can understand the reasons for voting for uh, him. Uh, uh, but with, I have no with, empathy for him. With the idea that empathy doesn't mean sympathy or feeling— Sorry for, but but or or wanting to be friends with, but just trying to understand where the person is or comes from. Oh, I see. Yeah, you know, I actually haven't tried very hard on that. I should. <laughs> that, no, that's a real failing. I really have not tried. Okay. How do you like to deliver bad news in person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? Uh, well, of course, you know, you'd prefer to do it by carrier pigeon, um, but. Um, uh, yeah, I guess in uh, uh, yeah, I mean you have to do it in person. What if anything would make you end a friendship? 
would make me end a friendship. Um, if someone, if if someone just is really boring, that's really the main thing. <laughs> that's you know, the first I can time take, we got that. Yeah, one. no, because like I can take arrogance. You know, I can take some arrogance. Like if somebody is a name dropper or they show off. Yeah. I mean, if somebody, you know, if somebody's truly racist, um, you know, I, it wouldn't not just like a casual comment, just because it's so easy to find, you know, to interpret things. But if somebody's truly racist, or if they're really boring, those are the two things that would, yeah, that would do it. That that's great. Thanks so much for being part of the show. I really enjoyed talking with oh, you. I did too. My pleasure, Alan. Thank, Thank you for you. having me on. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. To learn more about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist at New York University's Stern School of Business. And he's a best-selling author of three books, The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, and The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, which he co-authored. Jonathan Haidt's research examines the intuitive foundations of morality and how morality varies across cultures, including the cultures of American progressives, conservatives, and libertarians. At NYU Stern, he's applying his research on moral psychology to business ethics, asking how companies can structure and run themselves in ways that will be resistant to ethical failures. You can learn more about his research at ethicalsystems.org. And you can find out more about Jonathan at RighteousMind.com and OpenPlatform.org. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with an old friend, Stephen Strogatz. Steve's been trying for several decades now to give me a glimpse of what to him is the awesome power and beauty of mathematics. Steve's passion began with a simple classroom demonstration. It's a spooky thought that here's this thing, which is just a little weight hanging off of a string, and it secretly seems to know this thing that I have just been learning about Y and X in algebra class. And it gave me this feeling that there's a hidden world, that there's this secret world of math underneath the world we can see. Honestly, it felt like a quasi-religious experience, to tell you the truth. With patience and humor, bringing alive a world many of us feel lost in, Stephen Strogatz next time on Clear and Vivid. 
To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. 